rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I am sitting on Zoom as I have a lot been lately. (laughs) I miss getting people in my studio and sitting across the table from them, but I guess this is the next best thing. Today, I've got a really, really special guest. I've been looking forward to talking to Jamar for quite a while, and we just haven't been able to line our schedules up, but it's a long time coming. Mr. Jamar Tisby, he is a historian, he's a writer, and he's also a speaker. He's a graduate of Notre Dame and RTS Seminary. He's also working on his doctorate. He's in his dissertation at the University of Mississippi. So next time I talk to him, he will be Dr. Jamar Tisby. Uh, His first book is called The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, and it was released last year. And I'm really excited to talk about this subject. You know, if you're a listener, a longtime listener to my podcast, I've been touching on this quite a bit the past several months. Um, So today we have an author, again, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About American Church's Complicity in Racism. Jamar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're right. It's a long time coming, so I'm glad we finally get to hop on the mic together. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule as a as a writer and speaker, and now I'm sure your dissertation takes a lot of your time. Uh, yes, it should be taking more time. There always seems to be another crisis, another uh, current event to to unpack and pay attention to, but I'm trying to maintain focus and discipline. Great. Well, thanks for that. You're talking to us from Mississippi, right? I'm talking from the Mississippi River Delta, and I live on the Arkansas side. So, uh, you know, if if the Delta is sort of defined by the river, that's going to include parts of uh, uh, southwest Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. I'm on that Arkansas side. Okay, great. Great. Do you grow up in Mississippi? Not at all. I grew up (laughs) in uh, the Midwest, north of Chicago. And I got down to the deep south through Teach for America. After college, I joined TFA, which is sort of like the Peace Corps for teachers. They take um, mostly young college grads, put you in an under-resourced school district to teach for two years. And so that was almost 20 years ago now, and I just kind of haven't left. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Um, you and I have something in common. I, my mother and father were born and raised in Mississippi and mm-hmm. uh, were brought up there. Um, and all my relatives, extended relatives are from there and live there. And then obviously, um, well, I don't know why I'm saying obviously, I was not born there, nor did I ever live there, uh, visited a lot. Uh, but after um, my wife and I got married shortly after my father retired and, and they moved back there. So they have been back in Mississippi for many years and um, they just love it. And so um, I'm sure that uh, we could swap stories on another time. Yeah. Well, I'd say that, that living in the South has been an education all unto its own, right? So having grown up in the Midwest, we had this kind of aesthetic 
diversity in terms of race and ethnicity. There were lots of different people from immigrant communities, Polish communities, um, Mexican uh, and, and Latin American communities. And uh, so you, you, the visually you had this impression of diversity and this feeling of being post-racial. We wouldn't have used that term mm -hmm. when I was growing up, but it was the idea that, you know, things are okay, right? But it took me moving down to the deep South that clued me in to both the, the country's racial history and its racial present. Uh, mm -hmm. Because one of the things that the South does is puts in big, bold block letters, the racial lines um, that we operate under. And it really does. those lines can be less apparent in other places, but they're still there. And so coming down South helped me, I think, be more clear-eyed about the way race and racism functions in places outside of the South as well. That's a great, that's a great point. We, we do have, um, I think as Americans, we take a lot for granted in that uh, we're one of the few countries in the world that has this diverse culture across the landscape. You know, mm -hmm. I talk to people from other countries and my, one of my, well, both of my children have traveled internationally. They have friends here that are from other countries. Um, one of the things that I keep hearing over and over, they say, you know, whether they're from Europe, whether they're from, you know, different parts of Europe or, or, or even South America is, they say the thing that I love about Americans so unique is you could drive, you know, a day and be in a different culture, not just a, a different landscape. You can be in a different, um, eth almost a different ethos altogether of what's the food, what's appropriate, how people talk, um, races of people, um, political persuasions, all those things that really is unique to our country that we sometimes forget that, that uh, other, other parts of the world don't have that diversity. That's such a vital point that you bring up is the many different kinds of diversity all within one political body, which is part of why the politics in the United States is so tricky because we are coming from such vastly different backgrounds, Contest, contexts, even what I call informational ecosystems about mm. how we're being formed, um, both in terms of, you know, a, a broader social context, but also theologically as well. Uh, we, we tend to be in these bubbles or silos and how we understand Jesus, the Christian faith, all of that. And to, to unify and have that phrase, e pluribus unum, actually means something. <laughs> you have to be really adept at managing and maneuvering uh, across different races, ethnicities, and cultures, finding the commonalities, highlighting those, and bringing folks together, which is a tough skill to do. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And that's, that's why, you know, before we jump into the details of your book, I just want to get your perspective. Uh, I find it fascinating that you went from the Midwest and uh, outside of Chicago to deciding to, to live and bring your family into the Deep South um, there's a real value, I believe, and I've said this before on the podcast, is if you want to change your mind and your perspective, the greatest thing you can do uh, is travel. I think it was even Augustine that says, the world is a book, and for those, those who don't travel, they only read one page. Mm. Um, and I think that's how you change your perspective, open your mind, see things from other people's, because it really is easy to get stuck in a bubble 
uh, many times. And there's nothing wrong with loving your culture, where you're from, whether you love the South or the Northeast or the, or you're over on the West Coast. I have a son that lives in LA. Um, he loves it. Uh, but it's a different world altogether. Talk to me about what's your position on that. You sound like someone who's traveled quite a bit. I have been blessed to travel a good bit. It really didn't start until college, but I spent a semester in the Holy Land in mm. um, Palestine, Israel, Egypt. Uh, we went all over that that area, and so getting exposed to different cultures, different political realities, different religions that was massive. And then um, venturing outside of my comfort zone is, I think, sort of the, the motivating factor. So also in college, I spent a summer in the inner city of Chicago doing service work, which dramatically changed my perspective on what I might do for a living, that it wasn't all about career advancement and getting a big paycheck. That's directly what, what uh, helped to lead uh, to me joining Teach for America. It was that and the fact that I majored in American studies, which I had no viable prospects for employment uh, with that major. But uh, the idea of going to, quote unquote, the hard places, but also finding beauty in those places. And so the Delta is a place of, of rich beauty in so many ways, especially when it comes to community and relationships and family and history, all of those kind of intangibles, you can't put a price tag on, you can't uh, slap on a building or something like that. So, um, but beyond that, I'm also a big believer in pilgrimages. Mm. And so pilgrimage uh, has been a theme in my life. In many ways, living in the South for me has been a pilgrimage because uh, for the majority of US history, the vast majority of black people have lived in the South. And so for me, going from mm. the Midwest to the Deep South was, in a sense, coming home to a, a home I never knew. At the same time, there are sort of more explicit pilgrimages. So one of the things I've really appreciated about living in the South is that, uh, you know, I try not to draw too sharp a line between race here in the South and race in other parts of the country because it's, it's all over. But one of the things that is somewhat unique about the South is the geography and the physical landscape of it, because so much of um, what we remember as critical issues uh, or, or critical events in our racial history literally happened down South because it mm. was the place of race-based chattel slavery. And so, you know, just in Mississippi, you can visit, uh, you know, uh, the home of Medgar Evers. You can see the courthouse where um, you know, Emmett Till Emmett Till's lynchers were put on trial. You can go to Ruleville where Fannie Lou Hamer lived. You can go to the University of Mississippi where James Meredith integrated in 1962. Uh, you can go up to Memphis in the Lorraine Motel where King was assassinated. You can visit Civil War battle sites. So all of those places to me as a person of faith can be places of pilgrimage as we seek to understand from a spiritual and a theological perspective, the history of race in our nation, and especially in our churches. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. I want to jump into some of the themes of your book, but before I do, I think it's really, really important that I say something. And that is, um, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think this is an important point that's that you're writing a book that is both the history um, of, of the church's complicit uh, complicity in racism, but also um, you speak as someone who's coming as a uh, coming at it from a viewpoint, you are a Christian, and you also 
come from what many would say is a conservative, more um, reformed perspective. You went to reform theological seminary. So I just think it's really important that as a black man, um, there is so much of a diatribe around, especially in the church and even amongst uh, white people's conversation uh, on race and people in my circles, people I've had on the show, it's real easy to get into this. Well, you know, that's coming from a liberal perspective or, you know, that's somebody who supports white li- uh, black lives matter, which is a Marxist organization. Or I just think it's very, very important to set the stage now to say, you know, where's Jamar, what's his foundation and background? Because it's important that uh, you don't tune people out immediately when they start saying things that you deem doesn't fit your worldview. So what's your worldview from, from a theological perspective? So in terms of my kind of autobiography, I was, uh, I became a Christian in high school through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. Mm. Uh, it was sort of in, in the 90s, kind of very much part of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement kind of background. That is where I first learned the faith. From there, I sort of stumbled onto Reformed theology and attended uh, Reformed churches. My first church, uh, my first such church was a Dutch Reformed church, which I had no context for, but I walked in the congregation. I didn't know this at the time, but apparently the Dutch run tall. In, in their uh, lineage. And so not only was I the only black person there, I was pretty much the shortest person in the room. Uh, and they also and have amazing kickboxers. Not many people know that. Is that right? That yes. is, <laughs> I did not it's know the that. Weirdest thing because they're long and lean for one. Yeah, thing. I could see that. I could see that. So uh, it was, it was a lot of culture shock for me. And these issues of race and religion have always been at the forefront for me from an experiential mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, it's been a very long journey, but you know, so you, you can sort of fast forward my time in the Delta and, and, um, the Delta for both Arkansas and Mississippi is the poorest part of the state, but mm-hmm. is also the part of the state with the highest proportion of black people. Mm-hmm. And that is not a coincidence. It goes back to uh, uh, slavery and uh, sharecropping after that. That sort of forced me to ask questions about Jesus and justice. And what does my faith have to do with the fact that, you know, my kids' families are literally having to choose between paying a light bill or fixing the car. Um, and then uh, also, sort of national events such as the murder of Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown's killing, Black Lives Matter movement, and then seeing the response of Christians within my circles, right, in my own church, in my seminary. Um, folks I knew throughout my life really have forced me to reevaluate things. So I do come from a sort of insider perspective from that sense, uh, because mm-hmm. I know I've been steeped in it sure. uh, in a lot of ways, but at the same time, have never wholly been a part of it because of racial dynamics, you know, in but not of as a right. black person. Right. And then uh, also when these issues are pressed by, by current events or national events, and then seeing, you know, white Christians, white evangelicals in particular, how they respond and how that is so vastly different from the responses of other Christians who are also black has forced me to, to rethink a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I try my best to speak for myself 
And I probably don't always do a good job of that because um, I can be a very cynical person. Um, but one of the things that, that everything that's happened in the last few months, it has really hit me hard that I have a lot of deep, deep rooted racism inside of me um, that was, you know, whether it's nature or nurture, we could argue that all day long. But uh, I think I, I'm trying my best to hear other people's stories. I'm trying to root out um, areas of my own life that I have been blind to. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important about your book and what you touch on is before we talk about what's going on today and addressing some of those issues, it's so vitally important that we understand the history of years ago and way back. And I've said this on the, on the podcast before, you know, my father who lives in Mississippi, who's now in his eighties remembers as a very young boy, when he was five, six, seven, eight, nine years old in Missis in rural Mississippi, small towns on veterans day, having civil war vets there who were in their eighties, nineties and hundred, you know, centenarians. And so there are people alive today who touched, talked to and spent time with civil war vets mm. and we're not that far away. That's, you know, we, we think of it, we're like, Oh, that was so long ago. We need to get over it. It's hundreds of years ago. It really wasn't. It, right. It's really just like one person away. You know, (laughs) and um, so it's that always I always try to keep that in my mind when I look at these issues. The history is so important. So can you unpack for us that you did a good job in your book talking about the history going back to the 16, 1700s. But can you just kind of give us maybe a hundred foot view of why those time those events in the timelines are important to really understand and bring any type of context for the past you know, five years, much less the past 50 years. Absolutely. So I believe history is context. And a lot of religious people, when they go to read their Bibles, they they want to know the context. Who's the author? Who's the audience? What time period? You know, what what issues were they addressing that that may not be right in the text, but inform the text? And, and we do all of that work. And I went to seminary to learn how to, you know, use the tools to help us uh, do that in order to, what the Bible says, rightly divide the word of truth, right? Mm -hmm. So if we want to understand the passage at hand, we have to understand the broader context in which it was written. Well, it's the same with our lives and current events. If if we want to understand what's happening in our world now, we have to understand the broader context that tells us how we got to where we are. And this really came to a head for me in terms of the importance of history with um, uh, Ferguson and the Black Lives Matter movement. And so like a lot of people, I was trying to make sense back in 2014, 2015 of what was happening and why we had this national moment of hyper unrest and tension, racially speaking, and then getting down to a, a micro level. How do you have this predominantly white police force uh, in charge of, quote unquote, serving and protecting this predominantly black community? And how do you have such tension between these two uh, uh, communities, if you will? And it was, I found historians who often had the most helpful things to say, 
They were able to talk about redlining, restrictive covenants, the origins of the police force, slave patrols, all of these things that to me seemed like almost secret knowledge, right? To, to, that gave them this unique insight into the present day, which then spoke to not just the past, not just the present, but also the future, because if we know the historical context, then we know what works and what doesn't work. We can get beyond superficial analyses of, oh, we need more police, like handing out snow cones to kids, versus, you know, there's something deeply flawed in the way we think about safety, punishment, protection, all of these things that, that goes much deeper than, you know, a feel-good moment that could be captured in a meme. Mm, that's good. What are what would you say? I mean, nobody's going to deny, and under everybody understands, there was a slave trade here at one time, and everybody, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of Americans, regardless of their color, would say yes, that was wrong, and we're beyond that. But what are some other important historical moments in our society? that are really important to understand and put in context if we're going to move forward in this and really understand this whole idea of uh, systematic racism, systematic white supremacy, which many people still deny to this day. But but talk to me about what are some of those key uh, historical moments for you as you were studying this that you feel like are, are, are foundational to understanding this whole conversation? I'll start with ideology and move to events um, okay. because I think it's important that we understand why racism has been so resilient in uh, U.S. history. One of the things that I say in the book is that uh, a lot of people say that slavery was America's original sin, and I think it may be more accurate to say that slavery was America's original symptom, mm. and its original sin was greed. And so when we look at the system of race-based chattel slavery and why did it take a civil war to finally bring about abolition and emancipation, it's because there was money to be made. And to threaten the institution of slavery was to threaten the bottom line of wealthy people and the hopes of poor white people. Uh, so, so, so everyone's implicated, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and for folks who don't believe me, if you read the Mississippi Articles of Secession, Mississippi was the second state to secede from the Union after South Carolina, and they wrote their Articles of Secession as their stated reasons for breaking away from the Union and joining the Confederacy, published in January 1861. And in it, they call slavery, they, they say, um, first, that our, their separation is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. So for anybody who wants to say the Civil War wasn't about slavery, well, Articles of Secession refute that. But then it goes on to say that it, 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 the slavery is um, uh, the greatest material interest in the world. And then it uses all these economic times like uh, products and uh, commerce and uh, economics and whatnot, which says it communicates the, the financial investment that people had in rendering human beings objects and property. So that has been consistent even after the Civil War, because you get the growth of sharecropping, which mm -hmm. is debt peonage. You also get the growth of convict leasing, and then notorious parchment farm penitentiary started in um, the, the early 20th century, which is still operating today. I've taught classes at um, it's now called Mississippi State Penitentiary, 
but it's literally through cotton fields and it's built, it's set up like a plantation, right? So, so we got to understand part of the ideology here is valuing property over people, actually calling people property. We can actually see echoes of this in the present day as we look at responses to COVID-19 and the pandemic, which populations it's affecting, which are disproportionately black and brown and poor. And this rush to reopen businesses, reopen schools, get the economy kickstarted, and you know, consequences be darned for 170,000 people so far who have died. Uh, the other part of the ideology, there's two parts. I'm sorry, <laughs> this is a, it's a long answer, but I think it's important to understand some of what undergirds specific events. So two other ideological factors are um, individualism and the separation of the material and the physical. Mm. And so to illustrate that, okay, so you talk about historical events, 1667, the Virginia Assembly passes a law saying that, that baptism would not emancipate an enslaved Native American, African, or person of mixed race descent, which is mm. a startling event because you have this political body, which is comprised of white Anglican men, so ostensibly Christians, making a rule about religion that, that, that is delineated along racial lines. So that tells us a couple of things. Number one, you can't separate race, religion, and politics. Mm. You can talk about them separately, but they're all intertwined. Uh, so to pull one thread is to pull on the others. The other thing it tells us is this artificial bifurcation in white Christianity in the U.S. between the, between the spiritual and the material that... You could be enslaved and you could be Christian and baptized, but being an equal brother or sister spiritually didn't mean a thing for your equality materially. I'll give you mm -hmm. one more example of that. Uh, Francis Lejaw was a missionary with the Society of the Propagation for the Gospel. And in the baptismal vows that he had Native Americans and people of African descent say, he said, uh, he made them recite, you vow that you seek baptism purely for the sake of your own souls and not out of any ambition for freedom or emancipation, mm. uh, paraphrase, right? And basically he's saying, you know, God can have your soul, but we own your body. And separating those two, the spiritual and the material has been a, a massive theological flaw in the way Christianity has developed among white people in the U.S. for centuries. Mm. Wow. Um, what, in your opinion, are some of the overt theological defenses of these practices, both historically? I mean, gosh, we can go back to, you know, the 1800s and, and there were, um, I'm sure, what would be the equivalent of evangelical white Christians talking about, uh, you know, passages from the Apostle Paul saying, slaves, obey your masters, and, you know, things like that, which are overt theological defenses that today we would say, well, that's ridiculous. We've evolved past that, and we know that that was wrong. But does that still go on? Are there still overt theological defenses of racism? Yes, absolutely. So it's clearer in the antebellum period up to and including the civil war where you have theologians uh, making these very sophisticated sounding arguments based on the so-called curse of ham for instance that uh, 
black people or people of African descent are by the word of God relegated to a subservient position in the world. As you go further, those arguments take on a little di bit different cast. And so I write about um, a, the former president of Belhaven College, now university, gave a speech in front of Presbyterian ministers uh, and the entire message was a biblical defense of racial segregation mm. and used passages from the Bible to um, use passages from the Old Testament about like not mixing different kinds of cloth or seeds or something as a justification for not quote unquote race mixing as well. Mm -hmm. And even in the present day, you have ways of justifying racism and white supremacy through subtle theological maneuvers. So, so one of them is the hyper scrutiny that any theologian of color faces from white Christians. And so it is so fascinating to me that many people will more readily accept the theology of a slaveholder than the theology of someone who's fighting for black civil rights. Mm. So they'll accept the theology of a Dabney or a Thornwell or uh, you know, any number of, of segregationists in the 20th century with hardly a peep about their racist views. Mm -hmm. But then when it comes to someone like James Cone, J.D. Otis Roberts, any other, even Martin Luther King Jr., right? Uh, people who are fighting for black freedom, dignity, liberation, all of a sudden, whatever comes from their mouths is suspect. And mm -hmm. I can remember in seminary, the only time we learned theologies from non-white, non-European sources, it was basically in the context of what not to do or how they got it wrong. Mm. And that's, that's a subtle way of it. And, and, and if folks think this only affects seminarians or pastors, just look at your bookshelf. Who are the Christians that you follow or quote or learn from? How many of them are people of color? How many of them are black? How many of them are women? All of that stuff mm. affects us and how we shape our theological outlook. And then lastly, you know, uh, there's remarkable continuity in the ways that people deflect. And so in the 50s and 60s, it was this cry of communism that, uh, you know, not only were evangelicals decrying actual communists from other countries, but they were decrying civil rights activists as communists. And uh, you could automatically be written off if you had that label foisted upon you as communist. Even in the 21st century, we're still hearing those labels, communist, Marxist, critical race theorists, and people are making very sophisticated sounding arguments based on the Bible that these systems of thoughts are thought are wrong. Therefore, anyone who adheres to these um, theories based on evidence or not, because a lot of the people they're accusing of uh, adhering to these theories don't and say they don't. Um, but as soon as you apply that label, you can dis dismiss them. So yes, it's a short answer. It's still happening. Yeah. One of the things that, that I have observed, and I've spoken with several people on my podcast, and one of the things that has become so real and obvious to me now is that um, when we're talking about white, when white people talk about white people, they're individualized. When they talk about black people, it's as a group, it's as they. So 
the example that that was used is you know with some of these quote peaceful protesters if um if a black person does something violent at those they say well they they did this the black people in general or the black lives matter group did this uh, however if a white person did something violent um or was part of an anti-demonstration and this person shot somebody or did something really dumb or broke a window, they would say, oh, he doesn't represent us all and maybe he's got some kind of mental issue going on. Um, That's a subtle thing that I've caught myself doing historically and that is the way that systematic racism still persists. Uh, And you can see this and hear this in our conversations to say, you don't, you, don't, you don't allow the individuation uh, of a human being. You, you more look at it as a group and as a community, uh, as, as a whole people, but you don't do that for your own race. Yeah, and sort of the corollary theologically is that uh, white Christians and white evangelicals specifically tend to be hyper-individualistic. And so they'll apply this individualism framework to themselves, but not to other people, as you were explaining. But it also makes understanding issues of race and white supremacy almost impossible. Because if you only understand racism and white supremacy in an individualistic fashion, then you can't grasp how race and, and white supremacy work on an institutional, systemic, and policy level. And so Michael Emerson and Christian Smith unlay this masterfully in their little book, Divided by Faith, which I recommend to all your listeners as a starting point. And it unpacks why actually evangelical theology works against even their stated commitments toward racial reconciliation and racial justice. So so whatever uh, uh, people may say about wanting to see greater racial harmony, their, their, their individualistic theology in fact works against that very assertion, because if racism is purely a matter of individual attitudes of somebody, you know, personally discriminating or calling someone a, a racial epithet, then the solution is, well, I'm, I'm just nice to, to people who are different, right? And actually, some of my best friends are black. And last week, I had coffee with uh, a person of a different race or ethnicity. So guess what? I'm not racist. I'm not part of the problem. Right. But that lets people off the hook way too easy, because one of the things I often say, all the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to do a thing about mass incarceration. Right. All of the choir exchanges and pulpit swaps, swaps aren't going to offer uh, people of color voting rights, which they're gar- guaranteed by the Constitution. And so we actually have to work on more than an individual level. I'm not saying don't work on an individual level. We need to work on our hearts. But we also need to work on a systemic and institutional level uh, because there are systems and policies and patterns and customs society-wide that create and perpetuate racial inequality. Yeah, and I think there's another um, system systemic uh, white supremacist uh, evidence that we can observe all around us right now. And I think if you're willing to have a little bit of self-awareness and be honest, um, and that is in the demonstrations that are going on for George Floyd and uh, all these other things that are happening, um, you know, there is a, there's a push toward 
um, I call it a almost like a plantation mentality that says, you have the right to express yourself as long as you behave yourself and stay in line. But the minute, and I, and you will earn my ear as long as you follow my rules of the plantation, which is be a good boy or girl, don't show too much emotion. And if you get violent and pitch a fit, then you're going to be punished for it. And the way that we do that is say, yeah, I'm sorry that George Floyd uh, was killed and that's a bad thing, but the fact that they broke those windows and stole those things, I can't listen to them anymore. To me, that is not only blatantly racist, but it's also dehumanizing people. And nobody agrees with violence that I know of. Nobody wants and says that's okay. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't negate the, the argument and the stance and the protest. Um, to me, that's blatant white supremacy. Uh, you behave yourself and do good and don't act out and we'll listen to you. But the moment I think you're not behaving the way I think you need to behave, then I will, I will turn you off and it's no longer, right. you no longer have a valid voice at the table. That's right. Yeah. So um, protest is never convenient in the eyes of the oppressor or the mm. people who benefit from oppression, right? So, um, and language is important here because I tend to call them protests and uprisings because they are pushing back against dehumanization, pushing back against marginalization in some way, shape or form. Uh, but King you know, walked away from the Watts riots in, in uh, the 1960s and said, you know, a riot is the language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at the broken windows and say, well, that's a problem. That's where I draw the line, violence, looting, all this stuff. Or you can look at, well, what would cause that? Mm -hmm. What would cause people to, to want to respond in that way? And that is, requires a much deeper and much more uncomfortable probing because mm -hmm. now it gets to this rhetoric of law and order. And what does that mean you know, as, a, as a political dog whistle for uh, increasing police presence in black communities, increasing the militarization of the police, increasing uh, sentences uh, in cases of convictions, all of those things, right? Which then get to what do I fundamentally believe about black people and other people of color? I remember hearing from other Christians in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, don't go to quote unquote that part of town. Mm. And that is such a, a disappointing statement because what they're implying there is that these parts of town, which have a reputation for crime and poverty, are not places that Christians should go or white people should go. And guess what? They just quote unquote happened to be populated by black people. And so the mm -hmm. implicit message is there, don't go to that part of town, is also avoid black people or black mm -hmm. people of a certain kind, right? This is, yes. Um, so anyway, uh, what you're saying has, has, has a lot of truth to it. And I think um, there's no acceptable form of protest, right? Colin Kaepernick took a knee and that was massively disrespectful in the eyes of some people, even though the gesture came about from talking to a military vet, right? Um, for King, you know, and, and his compatriots, marching in the streets was too much. And Billy Graham says, uh, you know, you need to put on the brakes a little bit. All this civil disobedience, you know, that stuff's all this nonviolence, 
that stuff is just making making it worse. Um, and then, you know, we, we just said the phrase, we put a hashtag on social media, Black Lives Matter. Well, that was too militant and confrontational and all lives matter and blue lives matter, right? And then, uh, you know, no matter what form that protesting takes, there's always going to be a reason to protest the protest for people who want to remain comfortable or want to preserve the status quo. And whether you are consciously doing that or not, when you critique the methods of protest without addressing the cause of the protest, that's what mm. you mean. In your book, there's a, there's a quote that stood out to me. It's, you said, the most egregious acts of racism occur within a context of compromise. And um, that keeps ringing in my head because, you know, in the South, especially, we're taught from the time we're children, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I am, I am certainly not the, the, the person to hold up any flag to say, you know, I have, I have never been racist or anything like that. I know that I have been deeply racist and very hurtful to certain types of people. Um, but one thing I have tried to do is to, is to speak out, to have guests like you and others, and to have a voice to at least process publicly and along with people of my own race and others to say, I want to push forward. I want to change. Does it, are you implying that, um, because, cause, cause I'm wrestling with this and maybe you can help me unpack it with that statement. I'm wrestling with those people who, who my own cynicism, who maybe not aren't, aren't vocal anyway on social media. They aren't vocal in public. And so I get the silence. What bothers me, though, is those people who are always very vocal on social media, always have something to say, and who claim to be followers of the way, followers of Jesus, followers of the Bible, regardless of your faith, and yet are silent on these issues, are not addressing the obvious, are staying out of it. And that to me, is that what you're saying here? That this is yes. the most egregious act of racism occur within a context of compromise. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You have to speak out. Mm. I'm not going to let anybody have wiggle room there. Mm. You can't just say, since I'm not actively being racist, that I'm not part of the problem. Yes, you are. If you are not actively fighting against racism, then you are passively supporting it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's the quote that says, in, in order for evil to triumph, all it takes is for good people to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Right? So if we want to think of ourselves as, as good people or on the right side of history or racially aware, racially enlightened, then guess what? You cannot be silent, especially in this moment, which I think is, I think we're in the middle of another wave of the civil rights movement. I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were calculations done as far as the number of people involved in marches and protests now as compared to the 1950s and 60s. And by far more people are participating in 2020 than they were in 1963. And so uh, I really do think that we're in the next wave of the civil rights movement. A lot of people say, well, if I was alive or, or old enough in the 50s and 60s, I would have marched, I would have boycotted, I would have picketed, et cetera. I would have been involved in the movement. I would have been on the right side of history. Mm. But don't say you would have participated then if you're not participating now. Right. And then to your to the quote that you pulled on um, you know, the most egregious acts of racism occur within a context of compromise. I start the book out 
with the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, in which four uh, young black girls were killed in an act of racial terrorism. Now we can look at that event and say, well, it was just one bad apple, somebody who was mentally off and had it out for black people and, and literally killed them. But since that's not me, and I don't support or condone that kind of behavior, I'm not part of the problem. Well, right after the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, a, a young white lawyer named Charles Morton Jr. gave a speech in front of the all-white men's business club in Birmingham, and he called them to task. He basically said, you know, we are all condemned for this bombing and the one before it and the one a decade ago. We all did it. And what he was getting at was the idea that even though the people he was talking to didn't physically plant that dynamite, they didn't say anything the first time it happened or the next time it happened. And in their families or at parties or in the workplace, when people were denigrating black people, when they were uh, bad mouthing and disparaging the civil rights movement and nobody spoke up and nobody opposed, he's saying they were all complicit. And that in a sense, they all threw that bomb. They all lit the fuse on that dynamite because they allowed it to occur. And the question mm -hmm. for us now is what are we allowing to occur by our silence, by our apathy, by our passivity? Mm. Racism is an active force. It is being actively promoted and fomented, whether among groups on Facebook or in national news, or even in our churches, homes, workplaces. And the question is, when you are in the position to say something or do something, do you do it? Because if you don't, your silence and your inactivity is passively supporting the status quo. There's no such thing as somebody who's non-racist. You're actively racist, you're passively racist, or you're anti-racist. Mm. That's it. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, one of the things that I wrestle with uh, is Christian friends, family members, etc., really holding tight to this, um, this idea, and it's always white people, it's never black people, it's always white, that Jesus loves everyone and all lives matter. And, you know, he, I, I'm colorblind. Um, all of these things that are just um, kind of, to me, they're, they're just buzzwords for not dealing with the real issues and saying, and, and or not having any self-awareness to say, I don't, I, I really, you know, I, I don't own any slaves and that was 150 years ago and let's move on. And you, why do you keep talking about race? You're just bringing, you're just causing more racism by talking about race. Um, all lives matter. And, you know, this on and on, just all of the nonsense. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting cynical here, but just what, how, how do you deal with that? And how do you address it as a, a person of faith, as a person who's, who has been to seminary, who's a theologian to some degree? Um, and again, I always hear it from the white, uh, from the white voices. I also, what I hear is, them trying real hard to identify black people who support their voices. And then Ooh. I'll get, someone will shoot me a video video and go, see, you need to watch this. This, this guy is speaking the truth. And it's usually, you know, some, 
supportive of whatever position they're in. Uh, so I know I've just spewed a lot out, but can you kind of speak to some of those points? Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting from it is, you know, basically how, how do you interact with people and hopefully change minds of people who are staunchly against any of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of racial justice, right? But at the and, same and time, a, think, thinking they're, they're on the right track and that they're, they're conservative Christian people doing the right thing in the name of Jesus. Yes, yes. So um, looking at it from a spiritual perspective, I really do think this is a spiritual stronghold that we are fighting against principalities and forces in the heavenlies, right? That our battle is not simply against flesh and blood. That tells me, and I've learned through experience, that you can stack data and facts and statistics and history from floor to ceiling, and it will not do one thing to persuade someone of your point of view. Now, why is that? Well, partly it's, you know, psychological and there's an ideology behind it, but part of it's spiritual. And there's a prayer that I often pray from scripture that says, Lord, um, remove hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh, right? That, that are tender, that are empathetic, that can uh, experience solidarity. I also think, and this is going to sound controversial to some, but it has to be, you know, Jesus says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is actually saved, you know? Uh, so there are some folks out there who are claiming the name of Christ who, have, who actually haven't been converted to the way, who actually don't believe in Jesus, because the way the Bible puts it is, how can you say you love God, but hate your brother or sister? And you're, you know, folks are immediately going to think, well, I don't hate anyone. I try to, I just, I treat people as individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Well, understand that hate takes a lot of different forms. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been said that the opposite of, of uh, love isn't hate, or the opposite of hate isn't love. The opposite of, lo- you know what I'm saying? The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Yes. And so if you are indifferent to the screams of your black brothers and sisters about things like anti-black police brutality, voter suppression, food deserts, the fact that climate change disproportionately affects our communities, um, all kinds of issues that, you know, most people who are, who are, you know, characterized as, as you've described would call liberal issues or, or um, fake news or anything like that. Okay, you can say that if you want to because you don't trust national news media. Listen to me. I'm not in the national news media. I'm telling you from the Delta, from the poorest part of the state, from the fourth poorest county in the U.S., no, these are actual issues, right? I claim the same savior as you do. So you want to ignore all those other sources? Okay, but you're going to look me in the eye or listen to me and just completely discount what I'm saying, but not just what I'm saying, a majority of black people are saying, you can look at whatever poll, whatever survey you like, and vast majorities, 80, 90% of black people are in agreement about issues like police brutality, in agreement like uh, on, on issues that racism is still a persistent issue. So, so I say all that to say hate takes many forms. And if your um, reaction to what I'm saying and what scores of black people have been and are currently saying, then that is indifference and indifference is a form of hating your brother and sister. Mm. And that's a deal that you got to, you got to deal with that with you and Jesus, right? And then the other thing is this, um, not everybody's gonna get it. So I don't want people to beat themselves up, right? Our job is not 
to save, but to show. Mm-hmm. Our job is not to save people, but to show them Jesus, to show them the truth of Scripture, to talk about the bad news, which is why we need the good news in the first place. And part of the bad news is that racism is all up in the church, both historically and in the present day. If you want to pretend like it isn't or that it's some far off reality from either your church or your time, then you have a very poor understanding of what theologians call harmartiology, the doctrine of sin, because there's no sin that is, that is foreign to, to the human experience or to where you are. How is it that you have some sort of spiritual bubble uh, or shield against one particular sin, which is racism. That's, that's just not the case. And then lastly, I do find that history helps. So I think one of, the book, one of the reasons why the color of compromise has resonated with so many is because the facts are there. They're plain on the page. And you can trace it throughout different eras of the history of this nation. And when confronted with the details of these stories, not vague generalities about, you know, people were racist in the past, but we're, we're, we're over that now. No, here are names, dates, places, times, dates, all of that, where this stuff happened. It, 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 it makes you squirm a little bit uh, because nobody's off the hook. It's been true in every era of this country's history. And the question I have for people is when did racism end? When do you think was that big turning point that made this a problem of the past or such a small problem that we don't need to take much care of it now. Was it Civil War? Was it Brown v. Board? Was it the Civil Rights Act in 64? Was it the election of a first black president? Because I would argue racism has never gone away. It just adapts. Mm, mm. That is so good. Thank you so much for, your, for this past hour. We, I could talk all day about it, but I know your time's precious. I want to just, again, tell people the color of compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity and racism. They can get it wherever they get their books, Amazon. Um, Jamar, how can people uh, either learn more about you, get in touch with you? Do you have a website, social media, et cetera? Thank you for that, because this really is the beginning or a small next step in a longer conversation. So uh, if you want to hear more of my ranting and raving, (laughs) I am on social media to a fault. Um, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Jamar Tisby. Uh, You can also visit uh, thewitnessbcc.com for hundreds of articles on race, culture, religion from a Black Christian perspective. Uh, I also have my own website, jamartisby.com. And then lastly, I want to tell you about two relatively new initiatives. One, I have a second book coming out. It's called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. How to Fight Racism. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. It is a continuation in many ways of the last chapter of The Color of Compromise, which talks about practical steps for fighting Mm -hmm. racism. What's Mm -hmm. next? What do we do? That's what how How to Fight Racism is all about. And then lastly, uh, just letting folks know that we started something called the Witness Foundation. If you're looking for a tangible way to promote racial justice in our day, the Witness Foundation is dedicated to financially supporting Black Christian leaders. What we're seeking to do is offer very generous fellowships, $50,000 a year for two years to uh, Black Christian leaders who apply to a program. In addition to the funding they get, uh, training and nonprofit management, fundraising, leadership, 
And the idea is to build capacity, build leadership capacity among these individuals, as well as alleviate some of the financial burdens due to historic racial wealth inequality in the United States. So you can go to thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co, learn more about it, make a one-time or a recurring contribution. That's awesome, Jamar. Thank you so much. You're a busy guy. Um, I appreciate your time. I really do. This has been uh, amazing. It's been helpful for me and hopefully some of my listeners. And I just appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and your willingness to speak up because I know um, it's not always easy. It's not always convenient and it's not always safe. So thank you for your for your bravery in that. We, I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot. Hey, the feeling's mutual. Glad to know I'm not alone on this journey. And let's, uh, let's connect again in 21 after the book comes out. Awesome. Sounds good, Jamar. Talk to you soon. Take care. 